0: Good morning again. So this morning I'd like to continue with the exploration of what we call wise speech uh, and the further development of that as a practice. I know there are uh, several people here uh, for the first time. And so I'll give a little bit of a background, but also invite you, if if you're interested, further in this theme, to use the resource of uh, the website called Dharmaseed. All of these talks are actually recorded and then posted, usually within a day or two, at dharmaseed.org. And so there will be more detail on what we covered. This is the fourth uh, morning working with wise speech practice. And uh, there'll be two more. The first session was an introduction to wise speech, and I talked about the importance of wise speech and um, why it's so central to our sense of bringing the practice out into the world. Big issue for many of us, we may have quiet meditations and have wonderful retreats, but how do we have that same sense of um, energy and focused intention uh, in our everyday lives. Sometimes we can feel a little bit adrift in our everyday lives. And really emphasizing speech practice is a great way to have that emphasis uh, because so much of our lives have to do with speech practice. And it's been, for me, one of the benefits of teaching on speech practice a lot these weeks. And as most of you know, I led, or co-led, a one-week retreat right before I started. That was what inspired me <laughs> to do it. And it's really um, energized my own sense of speech practice. You know, So I tend, in these weeks, if I'm in a conversation, to realize that I'm actually doing practice, have that same in level of intention, which we can have on the cushion sometimes. So it really helps. It's not easy. And so if you are here and then midweek say, where is my speech practice? <laughs> and feel like you just, you know, had a good time this morning, but then just like, where did it go? That's okay. It really, it takes, it takes time to have this be um, the basis for a sense of practice moment, moment by word, moment. I know for myself it's really taken time to have that sense of practice you know, in a conversation, in a work situation, in a uh, relational setting, to have the sense that, OK, I have a, I have a clear sense of practice that in, in a way is just as clear as when I'm sitting there with my breath. That's the direction we're going. And it's clear that speech practice is really, really crucial, that we can have so much uh, suffering from unskillful speech and skillful and caring and beautiful speech can open up our hearts and our minds and be a great uh, boon in the world. So the focus that first day was on the importance of speech and on also the four ethical guidelines, which are the main resource that we get from the teachings of the Buddha on uh, what we can call wise speech or right speech, as it's usually translated. And those guidelines are there in one of the handouts Uh, at the top of the sheet. uh, I've reconstructed them as ethical guidelines that instruct us to be uh, truthful, helpful, come out of a warm heart, and have a certain kind of appropriateness in our speech, interpreted as uh, good timing, clear intention, general non-distractiveness. There's a lot of material there, and I'm not... I'm recognizing that there's a lot there. And the way I've structured, actually, these six sessions is that my suggestion is that you work with one of the um, sets of practices at a time, not to try to do everything at once. So those of you who may be visiting, if you find this helpful, you can go back and you can maybe for a week, you work with these ethical guidelines or maybe two weeks. You know, I worked with them, with a group, once for four months and they're, they, they're, they give us reference points for looking at our speech. So the suggestion is to, that's, I've set it up so that we could have one week for each of these uh, first four sessions, which are more foundational. And then next week and the week after, our focus is speech in difficult circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> which is what most of us, when we hear about this, we, refer, we, we most want. We want, how can I use wise speech with this particular chronic knot in my communication with X (laughs) (laughs) or Y (laughs) and so forth. So the second uh, session uh, introduced uh, a focus on mindfulness somewhat more. So we can use mindfulness with the ethical guidelines. They can really help us to uh, see more clearly. And we can also use the uh, mindfulness in a different way, um, which comes more from my own explorations and working with other teachers, in the midst of speech, whether listening or speaking, to have an inner mindfulness. And I think generally, this is a a challenging uh, capacity. It's to actually be able, in the midst of action, speech is a kind of action to have inner attention. Not easy. I invite it right now. As you listen to me, also track some of what's going on in your inner experience. It could be as simple, and this is what I recommend really, as simple as having a little bit of body awareness. A little bit of inner awareness doesn't have to be particularly meaningful, but just to notice one's body. What what we're looking for is a way to break the monopoly of the automatic mind. That is what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is about breaking the monolithic, ongoing, habitual, conditioned mind. That's why we sit and we notice that that automatic, ongoing, habitual, conditioned mind is rather strong. Anyone noticed? (laughs) So we, um, we can do that in our action as well. It's harder, not easy, and this is a practice that, again, I think takes time to develop. But that general keeping of some inner attention, try it right now. There's no, uh, as it were, demand for you to do anything other than listen. So you can listen internally some. If you notice thoughts are saying, well, oh, I should do that. or, or if you. Find yourself going off to uh, plan what you're having for lunch. I know that that happens sometimes, even though my talks may be very interesting.
1: <laughs>
0: so if you notice that occasionally happening or something like it, you can just track it and then you bring yourself back, and that's that's um, very important. And that's and and then. Last time, I brought in the discipline of nonviolent communication to help refine a sense of mindfulness. And I interpreted this discipline of nonviolent communication, which has been developed outside, really, of an explicit spiritual context and outside of, um, certainly, any explicitly Buddhist context, as a discipline to help our speech be more compassionate and connective, really. That's really the motivation. And it's a wonderful discipline that's really gained uh, a number of students around the world. It's become quite popular, developed by Marshall Rosenberg, a psychologist who I think was initially inspired by particularly by humanistic psychology and uh, worked with Carl Rogers and um, inspired by Abraham Maslow and other people in that area, um, and developed a system, really. And I want to briefly review where we were last time uh, because I think it's really skillful and helpful to interpret nonviolent communication as a refinement of mindfulness, meaning it's, uh, uh, it's to say, let me look in these areas of my experience." And that's really what mindfulness is generally. We sometimes think mindfulness is this general capacity of being aware, and that's true. But in the actual practice of it, traditionally with the Buddha, it was explicated as a way of being aware in specific ways. And he particularly, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the classic text, discourse of the Buddha, he said, be aware particularly of one's body, of one's thoughts, of one's emotions, of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in the moment, what he called feeling tone, and of some of the larger patterns of experience. Particularly, we are we're, we're guided to look at what happens when there's a moment of suffering. What, what, what occurs then? Do we... Do we get caught in it and so forth? And how can we free ourselves? And these are called, these uh, instructions are the four foundations of mindfulness. And nonviolent communication says, look at these aspects of speech and then on the basis of that looking, refine your speech. So it's both a mindfulness practice and as it were, an action practice, a way of speaking in a more skillful way. And it is important that um, um, we see that the general intention of nonviolent communication, as I think of wise speech practice from the Buddha, is to um, see what kinds of speech leads to suffering and see what kinds of speech leads to the overcoming of suffering And we could say greater compassion, understanding, harmony, connection, care, love, understanding of others, and so forth. That's the motivation. So it's actually both in the understanding of nonviolent communication as a kind of mindfulness practice and in the understanding of the reason why we're doing it, I think there's a lot of connection with uh, traditional Buddhist teachings. And it's no accident that nonviolent communication has been used in a number of uh, Buddhist monasteries. Interesting in that they felt a need for further resources. That's interesting to me and not surprising from having worked with Wise Speech over a lot of years and been interested in seeing what's really helpful for us. I think that the traditional resources are limited. They're mostly these ethical guidelines. Maybe it was implicit, you know, that people should just be aware and mindful and be skillful in their speech. But we do see in the classical text the Buddha really questioning people's speech and finding that there was a certain amount of unskillful speech in the various dharma um, communities of his time. You can find in the text, you know, reports of communities where people were uh, backbiting or speaking ill, or conflicts were arising. Um, nonviolent communication asks us to be attentive in four areas. And last time we looked at two of them, and this time we'll look at two of them. The two areas that we looked at last time were needs and feelings in the uh, language of nonviolent communication. And I gave uh, one of the handouts that I gave that's out there is uh, a kind of uh, inventory, it's called, of needs and feelings, which just really explains that. And when we looked at this last time, the assignment, as it were, or the homework, was to try to track needs and feelings in one's own and others' experience. So I'll say a little bit further about needs and feelings, and then go on to the third and fourth Aspects that are focused on, which are observations and requests, and this takes a little while to get used to and is really uh, part of um, part of developing skillful speech. And maybe I'll just I was just reminded of um, a story I was going to tell that I heard from my, um, my mother, and uh, she was reporting I don't think I told this story before but she was saying, you know, she's, a lot of my learning about wise speech, I learned from, from her. And she was a student of wise speech, but not in the teachings of the Buddha, but in other ways. And she told me a story of, you know, that she was really trying and raising children to um, differentiate between an action. Often, when there was a need to say something, it might be... Um, um, an action that she felt wasn't so skillful on the part of the child, <laughs> and and the and and the goodness of the person, you know. So it's a very common distinction that's made between the person and the action, and one wants to uphold the person, and in some ways direct attention to the action in a way that it could be improved and so forth, or whatever whatever language one uses, and so. Um, She tells a story um, of uh, talking to my brother, who had done something, and she said uh, to him, I love you, but um, I don't like what you just did, something to that effect. And he was like four or five at the time. And he said back to her, why can't you just hit me like Billy's mother does? And then he said, why can't you, he said, why can't you just hit me like Billy's mother does? You talk like a psychologist. <laughs> Which he had had some training. in. Uh, it's interesting for a four or five year old kid to say you talk like a psychologist. So, any case. Um, so here, so I think part of what that indicates, in putting what we're doing into practice, one has to be skillful. And there are ways that you can use what we'll be doing with nonviolent communication in a formulaic way, which other people, especially if they're irritated, will quickly pick up on. So this takes time to have this be kind of natural, what we're looking at. So we can come back to that. So needs, as interpreted in the nonviolent communication system, are taken to be universal they're distinguished from strategies. And if you were here last time, you remember that that's an important aspect of it. The needs are more universal. And we can see that that, that actually is a way to connect. When we, when we look at what are needs, or we could think of the question of what matters in a particular moment. You know, like, what, it's really in the connection with Buddhist practice, it's, it's linked with motivation and intention. It's, we could ask as we did last time you know why are we here what you know what what is the need that's being met by being here it might be to um, be part of a community it might be to be energized or inspired in one's practice it might be to just have a day in a beautiful place it might be to explore a new meditation center as in maybe some of our visitors and so forth but there there is a kind of universal human need that, that at each moment, is motivating our action. And we can check in with that and interpret that. Um, The needs are distinguished from uh, strategies, so we could actually look at many actions that are taken by ourselves and others as reflecting often legitimate needs, but having unskillful strategies. So that's very helpful. When we see someone doing something unskillful, let's say someone is getting really, really angry and just spouting off at me, right? It's very helpful if I don't immediately become defensive, but in an empathic way say, what's the underlying need? That's either. And that's, this case, typically not being met. So this is an invitation to tune in to underlying need, to distinguish it from strategy. So someone may be uh, yelling at me as a strategy in some way to get a need met. I may be drinking a lot as a way to meet a certain quite legitimate need, but using an unskillful strategy. That need might be what? relax. Maybe I drink because I'm. it helps me go to the bar and connect with people or um, helps me to deal with uh, difficult issues, right? And it's a legitimate need to be able to deal with difficult issues. It may be very, very unskillful to do that. And so that's an important distinction. So we're asked to tune in to those needs. And in difficult speech situations, it's not very easy to tune in to the underlying need of someone who's yelling at you. <laughs> this is part of the training that we undergo. And it's not, it's, again, it's not very easy. Um, so the invitation last week was to tune in what's my need? And some of this is interpretive. Some of it is to make a guess what's my, sometimes we don't really know our underlying need or motivation, but we can really ask ourselves what is the motivation? We also looked at feelings. And feelings are pretty, in the uh, nonviolent communication way of speaking, are quite close to emotions. And again, very, very helpful just to tune in and what is the actual feeling that's there. In the long run, the reason that the focus is going into feelings and needs is that the aim of the actual speech is to especially speak out of one's own experience without saying things which are essentially blaming and judging the other. The aim of all of this is connection. And so it's often very skillful to come out of first-person experience when there's a difficult situation. And rather than say, um, why did you do that? Say, I'm feeling frustrated that that will tend to not put the person on the defensive. And so, again, it's a whole way of using mindfulness to tune in to what the feeling or emotion is and to tune into the feeling or emotion as best one can sense it of the other person. That's That's the discipline. And so this connects with our mindfulness practice because one of the main fruits of our mindfulness practice is being able to be with more direct experience, to be with my body, to be with my emotions, to be with my thoughts, and to distinguish between more direct experience and my interpretations. And what we're looking for particularly in looking at feelings, can I be with that more direct emotion and know what that is and distinguish it from the interpretations that I make? One, and, and so this is, this is not always so easy that for me to say I'm frustrated is not the same thing as me saying why did you do that in a, in a tone of frustration, which implies you know, there's a lot that could be read into those words such as you did something bad which is causing my difficult experience. Which will tend to put the other person on the defensive. And so we want to look for more direct experience and tune into those feelings. Part of what we looked at last time was an interesting exploration of the peculiarity in the English language that we use the word I feel, or we use the phrase I feel in a way which often actually means I think. <laughs> and so um, it's, it's important to look at what seem to be feelings, but which actually involve interpretations. Those would be phrases like, I feel manipulated, you know, or um, I feel patronized. Is feeling patronized an emotion? <laughs> now, we can get a sense of what the emotions might be. What might they be if, I'm, if I use the language I'm feeling patronized? What, could be anger. Frustration. Shame. Unworthy. Um, I might be, see, is unworthy an emotion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, we're looking for, is there some kind of more direct experience, almost something that's directly felt in the body without interpretation? Shame. Unworthiness may be connected with a self-judgment. Mm-hmm. And so there's some thought or interpretation there. Whereas uh, usually, I mean, there's a, probably a matter of degree, but frustration or anger are more direct emotions. To say, I feel patronized, involves quite a lot of interpretation. Annoyance. I feel annoyed Um, is close. I think we usually think of that as emotion. It's actually (laughs) um, what we're looking to avoid is language which basically has the implication I'm feeling bad because you did this, right? And that that will tend to put the other person on the defensive. When I say I'm frustrated, the other person may be defensive. And we, you know, one of the things that we'll look at next time is that certain people will um, not be empathic, even if we're incredibly skillful. <laughs> this is true, or some people will be defensive even if I use this kind of speech totally skillfully. So this, all of what we're doing here is not a guarantee that everything will go well. But it may be a guarantee that it will go almost as well as is possible. Some, sometimes uh, possibilities are limited by the other person's internal state or by the social parameters of the situation. So, you know, we, so we want to look to see if we can actually notice feelings in ourselves without interpretation. And notice the extent, a lot of this is noticing the extent to which there are interpretations. So some of, a lot of our speech practice, when we first do it, is revealing and even sobering. Oh my gosh, I use language like that a lot. And, and if that is an experience you've had, that's OK. That there's, it's really, when we start looking more carefully at speech, it's amazing what goes on. It's amazing what goes on in public speech if you watch the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> Few of them are students of wise speech. <laughs> I am ready on the spot to do a special retreat for people from the Congress, <laughs> <laughs> if any of you have contacts. <laughs> and I think it actually would, yeah. I mean, it points to the way that actually, and I haven't talked so much about this, but these speech practices are really crucial individually. They're crucial interpersonally. They can be very valuable in groups and communities. And I think that there are ways that we can take them onto a larger stage, as it were. That um, and that I think that would be very positive, and some of us may be motivated in in those ways. You know, it's something that I've thought about a lot, and actually in my book I have I have some um, development of what wise speech practice looks like when we take it out to this even more collective level or the more social level. So the the emphasis on feelings is important because ultimately. What this practice is doing, much like our meditation practice, it's asking us to be responsible for our own experience. A radical move, right? rather than saying that someone else is responsible for my experience. That's not to say that other people are not responsible for what they do. They are. But in some ways, I take responsibility for my own emotions. And we also see, from, from the more of a wisdom perspective, that um, emotions do not exist as caused, in a simple way, by what other people do, or by external circumstances. And that goes contrary to sometimes how we think. So an example, um, I, have a, I have an appointment to plan out a, um, let's say I'm, I'm co-teaching with someone and I have an appointment to plan out, our, to do some planning for a day-long workshop that we're offering. My, um, my colleague comes half an hour late. And uh, what might be my feelings? Huh? Angry. I might be angry. I might be frustrated. Worried, anxious. I might be worried. I might be angry. Uh, angry. I already did that. An- an- anxious. Feel disrespected. Would you say that's a feeling? What do you think? Is disrespected a feeling, or is it this? Does that attributing causality to the other? What do you think? Yeah. Usually, I think. disrespect Yeah. These are some of these are tricky, but it's to really look into that and i think disrespect it implies the uh, i feel this way because the other person did something so we that typically wouldn't be a legitimate feeling I'm to
1: feel to maybe heard, like,
0: yeah hurt is a little closer it also oh. attributes causality so it's yeah. if if we can it's better to have something which in which there's no attribution of causality it's just my direct experience that will be tend to not put the other person on the defensive. What about yes. disappointed? disappointed? Disappointed my own Yeah, disappointed I think is is would not attribute causality. So um, but it's interesting um, it could depend a lot on the context, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. Let's suppose I'm really I've been really really tired and really overworked and he comes half an hour late. And I just say, I'm not sure when he's coming, but I'm just going to take a nap until he comes. How might I feel about him coming late? Relieved. <laughs> right? Right? Uh Or happy. <laughs> right? So you see, um, what I'm feeling isn't really, can't, we can't have a direct one-on-one causal relationship between the action of the other person. It depends on a lot of other factors internal and, and what's going on. And so there's there's a way in which we really um, take uh, responsibility for my own feelings and watch the tendency to attribute causality to the other. I think it's very habitual. We do that quite often. Um, so, yeah.
1: I mean, it's, OK, so anger is a primary feeling. Mm-hmm but if the other hadn't done X, my anger probably wouldn't be happening in that moment, so...
0: That's, that's true. Um, I'm not saying... There is causality no matter what. There's some... Um, there, there, there's not a direct causality in the sense that this person's action caused your anger to appear. There's a link between them. A link is not the same as direct causality. There, there's a correlation, there's a link there that catalyzes it, but whether you get angry is going to depend on a lot of factors, internal as well as situational. That's really the point. Right. So there is a link, and again, it's not to say that other people doing whatever they feel like is okay. It's Not to say they're not responsible, but it's just in this, it's really to, um, and there may be, ways of acting that tend to make most of us angry most of the time. <laughs> you know, I think we can say that. But the, remember that this is especially a way of speaking that, tends, that is used for the sake of connection and compassion and working skillfully with difficult speech situations. So that's really the design. And from that perspective, it's helpful to take responsibility for what one is feeling, and you know we know from our Buddhist practice there's a lot of emphasis on how can I be more skillful when other people do unskillful things, you know, and it might you know think of someone like the Dalai Lama. You see, when someone says something nasty to him, is he going to be angry necessarily? Maybe not, not maybe. So so that shows that there's a lot of room for the internal factors. You know, and and that um, we can take tremendous amount of responsibility, which is really the core teaching of the Buddha. It's that the root, the deep roots of happiness, are actually internal, and they're and we look for them externally, but they're actually internal. And so it's related related to this very much. Well, <coughs> would you say it has a lot to do with like do we judge something good, bad, or indifferent? Mm-hmm. So the in our
1: acceptance. Mm-hmm. Practice.
0: Right. The, the question is, is this related to how we, we judge something as good or bad? And um, I think very much that when we tend to evaluate, and it really is a segue to the next piece, which is on observations, because what we're asked to do, a key aspect of speech practice, the third aspect, is to direct attention to our language when we're describing a situation. And the intention is to use language in a way which leads to uh, making observation statements about a given state of affairs, rather than evaluating it as good, bad, or indifferent. And this also, a very, very skillful way of using language. When you can think of maybe difficulties that you've had with someone else, how much of the difficulties is by the way that you that one person characterized the situation. You can have a dialogue, and someone says, you know, um, you blame me. You were you were really aggressive towards me. And that sets up what? A dynamic where I may tend to be defensive. I wasn't aggressive. I didn't blame you. I just said this. Oh, you blame me. And there's actually no simple agreement even about what happened. You, when you look to conflicts, you'll see that that's often the case. I was thinking of a, um, a time when two members of a couple came to me and said, we want to use speech more carefully to be with our conflict. It's great you know, that they had that consciousness to do that. We took about two hours. The first hour and a quarter, maybe even an hour and a half, where we went, this was kind of things developed not in a straight line, but where we actually went was towards using language in a way in which we had a mutually agreeable way of describing the kind of situation which led to conflict. It took an hour and a quarter or an hour and a half to get there, to get to one or two sentences about what actually was occurring, which was something like one person says this, I feel reactive, I say this, the other person feels reactive and says this. That's fairly neutral. Before they got to that neutral place, what they were saying in the hour and a quarter was highly interpretive in a way that the other person went, Egh and was reactive. So this is a very key piece. It's really very similar to what we do in mindfulness practice where we try to have what's sometimes called bare attention and just be with direct experience and know when there's evaluation or interpretation. And again, the point I made a few times, last time especially, is that it's not that interpretations or evaluations are bad. It's that It's very, very helpful to know when we're interpreting and evaluating. And when they get, as it were, merged with observations or with feelings, and we express the observations full of interpretations, they're not really observations, or the feelings that are full of interpretations, (laughs) we'll tend to put the other person on the defensive. You know, so if I say, I feel patronized. That's very hard to respond to. What is the person going to say? I'm sorry, but there's an implicit interpretation in what you just stated as your feeling. And I disagree <laughs> with that interpretation. <laughs> with some people, that actually might be skillful. But with most people, they're going to pull out their hammer <laughs> you know, or something. So, So, here, so with observations. We want to find a way to have a neutral observation and to, um, when we're talking in a difficult speech situation, to come to a way of speaking about something that could almost be as if it was filmed, without interpretation, just a very simple action. So let me see where this is. So we want, in a way, to... uh, Notice if there are interpretations made in observations, when we're, and, and notice when you're speaking with someone else and you're referring to how things are in a given state of affairs, is there interpretation there? Now, when you're friends with people or, you, you know, or there's, things are going very well, that may not lead to conflict. In fact, you may, we often uh, may share in the interpretation, like if we're complaining about someone else. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll act as if we're making totally neutral observations, right? So there's a, there's a great example in Marshall Rosenberg. Let me see if I have this one. Let's see. Where he was um, working with uh, let me see where this is. this is. Right here. He was working with uh, a, <clears throat> um, An elementary, he was at an elementary school where the staff was reporting all sorts of communication difficulties um, with the principal. And he was, it took him a very long time to actually get concrete observations of what was actually done in a way that was neutral. So here's (coughs) this is very interesting. (coughs) Here's Marshall Rosenberg talking about this. I opened the meeting by asking the staff, what is the principal actually doing that conflicts with your needs? He has a big mouth, (laughs) came the swift response. My question called for an observation, but while big mouth gave me information (laughs) on how this teacher evaluated the principal... It failed to describe what the principal actually said or did that led to the teacher's interpretation that he had a big mouth. (laughs) When I pointed this out, a second teacher offered, I know what he means. The principal talks too much. Is that an evaluation or a strict observation? Talks too much. Instead of a clear observation, Marshall Rosenberg says, this was also an evaluation of how much the principal talked. A third teacher then declared, He thinks only he has anything worth saying. I explained that inferring what another person is thinking is not the same thing as observing his behavior. (laughs) Finally, a fourth teacher ventured, he wants to be the center of attention all the time. So see, they were a little slow in getting this sense of observation. After I remarked that this too was an inference, of what another person is wanting, two teachers blurted out together, your question is very hard to answer. (laughs) (laughs) We subsequently worked together to create a list identifying specific behaviors on the part of the principal which bothered them and made sure that the list was free of evaluation. For example, the principal told stories about his childhood and war experience during (laughs) faculty meetings. With the result, that meetings sometimes ran 20 minutes overtime. When I asked whether they had ever communicated their annoyance to the principal, the staff replied that they had tried, but only through evaluative comments. They had never made references to specific behaviors, such as his storytelling, and agreed to bring these up when we were all to meet together. Almost as soon as the meeting began, I saw what the staff had been telling me. No matter what was being discussed, the principal would interject, this reminds me of the time. <laughs> And then launched into a story about his childhood or war experience. I waited for the staff to voice their discomfort around the principal's behavior. However, they applied, instead of using observation statements, they applied nonverbal condemnation. Some rolled their eyes. Others yawned pointedly. One stared at his watch. I endured this painful scenario until I finally asked, isn't anyone going to say anything? Afterwards, silence ensued. The teacher had spoken first at our meeting, screwed up his courage, looked directly at the principal and said, "And you have a big mouth.
1: <laughs>
0: As this story illustrates, it's not always easy to shed our old habits. Yes. um, So let me see. He does. Um, Let me see where this was. Okay. So um, eventually, the teacher succeeded in clarifying for the principal the specific actions which led to their concern. The principal, in turn, uh, listened earnestly, and then pressed, why didn't one of you tell me before? He admitted that he was aware of his storytelling habit and then began a story pertaining to this (laughs) habit. I interrupted him good-naturedly that he was doing it again. We ended up meet the, our meeting developing ways for the staff to let the principal know in a gentle way when his stories were appreciated. So, yeah.
1: So I'm. I'm still. I am a little confused though about causality because it would seem that when the principal told the irrelevant stories, that would be the causation of the frustration of the staff. So it would seem that if you were going to point out something, it would be a kind of a neutral, when you tell a relevant story. When you tell a <laughs> story <about laughs> in this setting, yeah. that's
0: frustrating. That would be the way to speak. That would be the way to address it. Uh, and one can do that without attributing causality. It's, a you know, car, correlation is not the same as causality. And so um, I think from the example I gave about being late at the meeting, there might be some people in the room who actually really liked his stories. And so the stories by themselves don't cause someone to be frustrated. There has to be, uh, there have to be other conditions, basically, there internally and so forth. You got it? I got it.
1: If somebody grew up with a father who you could never say anything to, and you thought that the principal was going to act the same way, then that wouldn't be right,
0: either. Yeah, if one, if one has um, internal his, personal history in which there's someone who triggered you in the exact same way as the principal for like 20 years in growing up, it would be a little more intense. And, uh, and that, that's how we live. That's how we live. People remind us of each other, and we make these connections. And that's why it's important. That's really taking responsibility for our own experiences, is to take responsibility for the fact that this has been my history, and this is my conditioning. So you have a sense of what observations are? Yes. And I think maybe in terms of time, I was going to deal with requests which are important, but I think because of time, I'll do that next time. And what we want to look for is to bring in this piece of observations. And maybe I'll give one or two f- just further examples, and then have you tell me what, whether this is an observation or not. OK? My mother was unreasonably irritable with me when we spoke on the phone. Is that an observation? OK. Nancy cooked soup three times last month. Pretty good. Sam did not follow my orders. What do you think? Sam did not follow my orders. Well, I think what he was... Yeah, this, this is a little bit in a gray area, but it's actually more helpful, more specific... When we say, if I said that interpersonally, what might Sam reply? Yes, yes I did. Yes. So it's it's going to be more helpful to be very specific. When I asked you to do this, you didn't do it, or I didn't see it done, something like that. So, but I think I think this is a little bit in a gray area. But what we're looking for is more specific references that almost could be uh, noticed almost by like a video camera. We couldn't, you know, that this a a very specific action. Does that help, some Mark? Mm -hmm. Maybe you can sit with that one. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Jane is a great facilitator. When she facilitates, the meetings go really well. Is that an evaluation? Yeah. Yeah. And what would what would we want to have to make that an observation? What she does. Specific. You know, maybe what is the. As we would say the operational meaning of meetings going well. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? What might it mean? We finished on time. Maybe we finished yeah. we finished on the meeting finished on time when it was set, or it might could be what else?
1: The
0: agenda, the agenda. Huh? The agenda. people stayed discussing the agenda. Yeah. So we want to be more specific. Um, George talks a blue streak whenever we get together. <laughs> <laughs> Henry was the first one who showed up for dinner last week. So that's an observation. Anne always repeats what others say. Is that an observation? (laughs) Yeah. Anytime you notice always or something or never. It's a clue that there's evaluation. So you get the sense. And what, we're, what we'll invite is really bring mindfulness to your speech in these areas of um, needs and feelings and observations. And what we're, the direction that this is going is to be able to, especially with a difficult situation, to use language in a way in which we make a neutral observation, report feelings, connect it with needs, and then potentially, if it's necessary, make a request. And we'll, we'll talk. I'll talk about next time. The request is something that's not a demand, but it's a way actually uh, to meet a need. And I'll, I'll look at that next time. And so as we practice it, it's a little bit formulaic at first, but as one practices, one finds ways to really bring, the principles are really to, first of all, bring mindfulness to these areas. Notice the way we actually use language. Or am I using, um, am I thinking I'm using observations, but actually using evaluations and interpretations? And again, the whole idea is to look for language that tends to be non-empathic, and put the other person on the defensive, or could be due to evaluate or judge myself. And so uh, that's the that's the invitation for this next period of time. So we have a little bit of time if there are any remaining uh, questions or comments on this. Please. Um, I, this past week, have been thinking
1: a lot about, um, you mentioned disappointment. Yeah. feeling but sort of one level up at evaluation. Yeah. Because it feels to me that um uh when you say disappointment, there's a question that the other person could have joined X and didn't do it. Yeah. So I what I've been thinking is that maybe I'm trying to figure out sort of what the components are of yeah. seeming feeling and thinking that maybe it's some is, some of it is anger, some of it is like feeling alone. Mm-hmm. Some of it is um
0: Yeah, that's great. It's really it's what's great is the inquiry, you know, because I think there some of these words are um, are somewhat in a kind of a middle area. Words like hurt, for example, we use that, and and probably in someone's usage could actually sometimes attribute causality and sometimes not. People probably can use the words differently. So it's a little nebulous. Other words are less nebulous. But what I really love is the inquiry, is that you're actually, when you look deeper, well, there may be some of those other qualities. There may be some of that sense of, um, uh, what did you mention? The? of anger, feeling alone, wanting
1: to be connected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, the anger, quality of loneliness perhaps, and that really it's unpacking it. So it's really, what I love is the inquiry. It's really saying, what's really here? That's great. And that's really, um, I think we're, what we, I think is not so helpful is to look for some kind of complete exactitude and precision. Language is not like that. It's somewhat, we even probably use these words a little differently if we just compare it among ourselves. But to really look for the general idea of what's there in more direct experience, what kind of language has evaluative dimensions. Again, at certain points it's valuable to go to evaluation and interpretation. It just is when we're in difficulties or conflicts, if we use those, that's not so skillful and it will not tend towards empathy or compassion. You know, Like in the example, if I say I feel patronized, the other person, it will tend to make the other person defensive, and it's very hard to respond because there's an implicit interpretation that, in in a sense, I'm kind of almost like demanding to respond to me, you have to agree with my interpretation, which is subtly manipulative, maybe unconsciously. So, yeah.
1: Could you say something about how equanimity
0: comes into this? How does equanimity come into using these, these tools? Equanimity in, in the teachings of the Buddha is closely connected with wisdom. And it's sometimes likened to the quality of a grandmother who's seen everything <laughs> and nothing is going to phase her or knock her around too much. And there's some, I experience something like that when one's aware of all, you know, in more detail, of what the habitual language use is that's so widespread in our society. And when you actually watch it, it uh, for me, it does lead to a certain equanimity. Like, OK, there's that happening. There's someone choosing language unskillfully. You know. they, they work, so they can't come Wednesday mornings. You know. And of course, we might occasionally notice ourselves using that kind of speech, even though we've come on Wednesday morning. Um, <laughs> But it can lead to a certain um, sense of balance. When we study a lot of this, it's, 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 at first it's a little sobering because you how, what, we can notice how widespread the unskillful use of language is and how it is connected with suffering. It's a little bit like when we watch our minds for the first time in meditation. Isn't that somewhat sobering <laughs> to notice our own patterns? Over time, when we stay with it and notice it and watch it, it leads to equanimity, which is essentially not being so uh, reactive or traumatized or saying, "Oh my God, this is your, you know." There's, I'm so limited, or these people are, you know, blah, blah blah blah. So I think it can help in in that way. And equanimity, as it's taught in connection with loving kindness, is also to be fully mature has a lot of caring and compassion in it. And so I think, ultimately, when it's it's much like watching our own minds. Remember that statement that I like to give sometimes where Trungpa Rinpoche says, when we study our own minds, we, we experience that self-knowledge is 70% bad news. Remember that one? <laughs> Anyone ex- relate to that? <laughs> so um, same thing with our language use, that we can have, um, compassion, and be willing to um, be willing to go in the other direction. Be willing to go towards greater understanding, compassion, and maybe I'm noticing the time. Maybe a good way to end is with an email that I just got last night from someone who was at uh, the Wise Speech Daylong about a week ago. Let me see if I can find this because I, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll change a few details because I, um, let's see. The week following the day long, I had a good opportunity to put the NBC techniques to work. I have a 15-year-old son. We get along great, but we have our moments. Moments are in quotation marks. After two of these moments, in one afternoon, <laughs> I was able to speak to my son about them in a way that he could hear and understand. Instead of more hurt feelings or an emotional meltdown or explosion by either or both of us, we, quote unquote, resolved the the issue. Okay, What actually happened was he apologized. (laughs) (laughs) For the rest of the week, he went out of his way to be helpful with with anything that needed to be done. It was quickest and the most satisfying end for both of us to one of these particular moments that we've had in a very long time, maybe ever during the teenage years. And and she talked also about how gratifying it was to be able to bring teachings, which are about having greater peace and understanding, which sound kind of idealistic, right? How to bring those into the nitty gritty of being with a teenager. And this, for her, was very, very uh, meaningful. So I'll leave, with that, leave us with that story and invite us really to, again, bring. we're really, in a sense, establishing foundations. Uh, if we think of these first four weeks, they're really about establishing the foundations that can then help us. And the next two weeks, we'll focus on difficult speech and, and do some integration. But if we think of what we're doing now as, a, as getting some foundations, we're practicing pieces. We're not... We're not putting it all together quite yet. We're developing the ability to go to the level of observations, to, make, to be more skillful in our observations, to notice what we do, to notice feelings, to tune into needs of ourselves and others more skillfully, to have some inner and outer mindfulness. You know, so I'm tracking what I'm experiencing, which is really related to noticing my feelings. And then working with these ethical guidelines. Again, for those coming here at the first time, not all of those at once. Just do do one of them at a time, one of those, kind of one of the segments that we've done in these last weeks. And these really, as it were, assemble the pieces that when we get good at each of these pieces, then next week we can bring them together and uh, look at how we can be skillful and wise and compassionate in our speech when we have challenges. And we'll probably, we won't go right to the most difficult challenges, but we'll work with, out of a degree of difficulty of 10, we'll work with four to six. So actually for next week, if you come, bearing in mind some, of, some challenging speech situations, that would be great. And we'll have a chance to work with them. And I think I'll try to get my part of the talking done earlier so we can actually do some experiments with with speaking next time. Yeah? Will we ever deal with 10? Well, the question was, will we ever deal with degree of difficulty 10? What would one do as a diver who is practicing? Would you start with 10? Yes. yeah, um, we, uh, we won't go right away, but, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe, the, maybe two weeks from now. <laughs> okay, so let's just sit for 30 seconds to finish. And knowing that we do these explorations and cultivate mindfulness and awareness of speech and of our internal process, both for ourselves and for others, Let your intention for the next week be present and let it be in the context of offering the fruits of our morning to others for their benefit and healing and indeed the benefit and healing of all beings. Thank you very much and take notes and enjoy the explorations thank you thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers
1: and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org donate